Welcome to the Samuel Andreev podcast. To support this podcast, please visit the donation page of Samuel's website or his Patreon page. There are links in the description. Samuel's Twitter is at Samuel Andreev. Chris Dench, thank you very much for uh, agreeing to talk on this podcast. It's it's really good to get a chance to talk to you. Yeah, nice to be here. So I wanted to start things off with a question about the vernacular. And the reason actually that this came to mind was I was listening again mm-hmm. to your piece, Funk, and I noticed that uh, you you have a, a number, you well, you often sort of have quotes attached to your, to your scores, to your pieces, uh, citations, things that... Uh, help us have an idea of the the world within which you were immersed during composition. And I couldn't help but notice that there's a quote from Thomas Dolby, from a Thomas mm-hmm. Dolby song. And that got my attention uh, because it's not, uh, it's not a musician that you would often hear referred to in the sort of world of, of contemporary composition. So I wonder if we could start there. What is your connection to music of this sort, and how does it filter its way into your compositional world? Well, firstly, I should point out that those kind of references are usually digressive. I mean, my the whole idea is to kind of push people away from the music so they come back towards it. Um, and very often these quotes are kind of red herrings. The, the, the quote on that one from Thomas Dolby is actually because it's um, a pun on funk, because he's talking about funk as music, but also funk as being um, depressed. And so I like the idea of quoting a um, pun from someone else other than my, my own puns uh, in the um, context of this work, funk, which is not particularly funky in terms of the musical language. But um, it does have a sort of propulsive energy that I thought had a certain uh, Thomas Dolby-esque quality to it. I mean, I'm thinking of works of Dolby like Fieldwork, which are sort of vast orchestral palettes with long sustained high notes. Um, And you find in my pieces that quite often there's a popular music quote that sort of um, reflects back towards the music, but obliquely. I like I like oblique references. Well, it seems to me that if you if you look back across the history of Western art music composition, there's always been some form of a connection with the vernacular vernacular elements of some kind. In, in other words, elements of a popular language that uh, are, are either transcended or incorporated, or that that serve as a, a kind of a, a basis for some kind of elevated expression. And this from a historical perspective, seems to have been the case right up to the towards the end of the 19th century. And then you, you, you see it sort of suddenly drop off with the advent of modernism. Uh, I wonder where you think we are with that sort of uh, well, schism. Yeah. I don't think it drops off with modernism. I mean, if you look at the first 50 years of the, of the 20th century, you've got modernism be going on precisely at the same time that all those English-speaking people, and in fact, Czechs and Germans are also wandering the countryside, notating folk song and incorporating it into their work. So you, so at the same time that you've got Schoenberg writing Erwartung and Peleas and things, you've got um, the early early British uh, folk composers creating things like the um, Fantasia on a theme of Thomas Tallis, which is admittedly is not folk, but Vaughan Williams incorporated a lot of folk sounds into the music of that period. It's it really at the point of the Second World War, 
I think that the um, divergence between the vernacular and and modernist, what became the, the sort of major dominant voice in composition, really departed company. But ironically, that's also the moment when the convergence started, when the emergence of the popular culture in America and people like Elvis Presley started to be noticed by popular musicians. And, um, you know, it's important to remember someone like Babbitt is actually a collector of American vernacular music. And over my lifetime, I've seen many things happen. I mean, I've seen things like the early music movement go from non-existence to being dominant. We've seen um, in in the world of popular music, we've seen music uh, go from being played on acoustic guitars to being played on complicated polyphonic synthesizers and assembled in people's bedrooms. And over that time, um, the music that people have been exposed to has become much broader. I mean, when I was a child, I was forbidden to listen to popular music. So I had to sneak, forbidden, I had to forbidden. sneak out and listen to the Grateful Dead and John Coltrane and and the horrible Beatles when no one was looking because it was actually, I think, considered to be morally repugnant to that music. And, you know, for those of us who were sort of classically in, inclined to listen to that music was somehow slumming. It was the equivalent of a visit to the to the brothel, um, and it's interesting to think that over time. I mean, I worked in a record shop, and when I was working in records in the seventies, there was a real massive distinction between the people who wanted to browse the classical and the people who wanted to browse the popular music. So they were at the opposite ends of the shop, and over time, this has changed. It's got to the point where. A lot of younger people today don't really draw any distinction between the vernacular and, and you know, classical music. For them, it's just a spectrum. And sorry, the other component to this question about vernacular music is is the idea of, of rootedness in a kind of indigenous culture, um, and the the sense of connection that a composer might have with their own, let's say, uh, their own aesthetic roots or their own uh, cultural world. And I think that's also a form of the vernacular. And you see it in terms of uh, the second Viennese school and their profound attachment to Viennese music uh, of all stripes, even though that may have implied, uh, that may have also gone along with a certain uh, distaste for actual popular music. Well, again, that's because, you know, musics have a huge number of uh, strands and they, the, Modernists, most modernists I've met, do have you know sentimental attractions for other musics. Um, I mean, there is a cliche that modernists are kind of people wearing th thick glasses who only ever listen to the most difficult music, but it's not really true. And I mean, I have an affection for a lot of musics, but I don't think many of them are kind of indigenous for me. I mean, I'm an Englishman of by extraction. And uh, most of the music that one might consider to be uh, vernacularly English is pretty revolting and didn't, doesn't hold much interest for me. Um, I think notions of lo locality and um, the sort of Thomas Bernhard hatred for his Austrian roots uh, being the antithesis of this, um, you either feel it or you don't. And I personally don't particularly. Yeah, I mean, that's... You're certainly not the only composer I've heard um, 
from England uh, make that make that sort of distinction. Um, and I suppose that's that's true of myself also to some extent. I'm, I'm from Canada, and I never had any particular interest in in the music of Canada. Uh, and perhaps in a, in a certain sense, just because of our historic uh, and uh, cultural position, we're obliged to be internationalists. And then on the other hand, you find people like Michael Finnessy, who's made a really um, powerful use of his indigenous Englishness and has, uh, you know, kickstarted his modernism out of any number of, of rethinkings about what it is to be English from the English country tunes right through. Um, and so it, it works for some people. It, it just, I think it's partly to do with the fact that I, I am ethnically not particularly English. I mean, I'm partly Jewish, partly Celtic. And for me, English never, Englishness never really held a particular attraction. Well, so maybe we could back up a little bit and, and talk a little bit about your, your, your formative years, because you mentioned uh, this, uh, this sort of vignette of uh, attempting to listen to the Beatles, but being forbidden to do so. And uh, how do you become interested in something like contemporary composition growing up where you did and in, in the circumstances that you were in? It's funny. Uh, when I did get to hear the Beatles in someone else's house, I hated them. I have to tell you that. I've never liked songs. <laughs> I like I like long jam form musics like The Grateful Dead and Fish and what have you. Um I, look, I started writing music when I was eight years old. I have no recollection of starting doing it. I, I, re I cannot remember a time when I didn't. So why I ended up doing it is simply a consequence of me being parked in front of a piano and given lessons and immediately starting to write music without hesitation. So I think no one told me not to, so I did. Well, what, what were some of your first encounters with, let's say, uh, 20th century or, or post-war repertoire um, when you were young? I think the, the same as most people, really. I heard um, The Rite of Spring. I heard Daphne and Chloe. Actually, William Walton's Facade, which you know is a bit twee these days, but was quite radical at the time. And then um, I had an organ teacher who actually was quite radical in his interests. And I was round at his place one day, and he played me a radio broadcast of, of Gruppen, and then on another occasion, he played me the Shimonovsky Starbat Mater. And I heard over the radio one night the Barricade Piano Sonata. So it was piecemeal. You just pick these things up out of the ether. But I was very fortunate, like probably most people have someone in their lives who just kind of nudges them towards interesting things when everyone else around them is, is being conformist. And so for me, it was beneficial. I had a teacher who introduced me to uh, Robert Greitinger's City of Glass played by Stan Kenton Orchestra. Um, I'm just thinking of the ones that most particularly impressed me at the time. Uh, my father was interested in the music they played on the test card on the television. And the BBC test card at the time actually played really obscure classical music. Um, and so I got to the first Rachmaninoff piano concerto I heard was the first one. And he developed a real passion for Alcon. Oh, yes. Of all people, yeah. And so I, I first heard Alcon when I was about 14. Hmm. So, you know, and I've strangely, I stumbled on all kinds of pretty obscure composers in my early teens. Ignacio Cervantes, who wrote all those Cuban dances. Hmm. I came upon Benjamin Godard, um, uh, Mompo, 
for heaven's sake, you know, this, this stuff just sort of passed, passed, passed my gaze um, through sheer good luck, I think. It's funny the things that one will tend to latch onto also uh, as as being a, a potential source of excitement or inspiration or whatever it might be. Uh, you mentioned alcohol, yep. and it's it's music that that's just so uh, utterly strange in in many respects, and and yet also familiar enough in terms of its basic contours that it it's not it's not utterly off putting when you first hear it. It's not alienating. That's true. Here's a funny funny thing though. I grew up in Dover on the coast of Kent. It turns out that at exactly the same time that I was going to Folkestone to have piano lessons, Ronald Smith was eight miles away making those recordings of Alcon, the original Ronald Smith recordings of the Symphony of the Concerto and, and the Festin des Op and all those pieces. At precisely the same moment that I was having piano lessons in the same town, so, you know, when I actually re-encountered Alcon and did the research, I discovered that I'd actually been so close to the source all the time and hadn't known it. Yeah, and having a feeling of proximity to something, even if you only discover it later, does does add something to the experience. It does, um, it, yeah. Did, were you listening to Radio 3? Yes, of course. Uh, there's a very interesting book you might know uh, called The BBC and Ultramodern Music that uh, I, I believe was a, a doctoral thesis and then eventually got published as a book. And it, it, it retraces the very early history of the BBC and its efforts to uh, bring sort of uh, very, uh, what at the time would have certainly been a very unusual contemporary music to a wider public. It's a fascinating story. Yeah, no, I don't know that. Do you know who it was written by? It's by Jennifer Doctor. Doesn't ring any bells. I'll have to look out for that. I mean, it's interesting seeing what people like Robert Simpson say. I mean, Robert Simpson described the BBC as Kremlin-esque. <laughs> and it sounds like he had huge fights because he was uh, on the team at the BBC. And I think there was probably um, a virtually a civil war going on while all this was happening about promoting, as you say, ultra-modern music. And it's interesting that quite a lot of those recordings that the BBC just kind of put in the cupboard have just recently started to be re-released on the Lyrita record label. And so I recently listened to uh, large-scale works by Humphrey Searle and um, I was trying to think what the most recent one, Peter Racine Fricker, hmm. those sorts of works. And and Robert Still, and so it's it's interesting that this material is actually seeing the light of day again at fifty years remove. That is quite quite interesting. I'd like to I'd like to find out more about that actually, hmm. uh, because it, it seems to me that the BBC at that time instigated a model that actually occurred in the UK earlier than it did in uh, in continental Europe. Uh, of the state f effectively uh, sponsoring and bringing to public attention things that uh, were of high quality, but that would not necessarily have been popular successes, and uh, and and sort of putting those resources into making sure that this music got some kind of a hearing, even if perhaps not many people would have been listening to these programs. 
I think there's, um, in hindsight, people remember it differently. I mean, my, my feeling at the time was that this music actually didn't get that much exposure and that, you know, you had to make a special effort to go and hear it. And the proms usually had some interesting concerts that I would make sure I attended. But in retrospect, a lot of the, the more traditional composers are, are crying foul and saying that back then they couldn't get their music played. But that's not really how I remember it. And so I, I had to sort of seek out interesting performances of repertoire. But I did have the good luck of being in London all the way through the 70s, so I was able to attend the premieres of works like, um, you know, all the boat whistle pieces I heard, um, uh, Carmen Acadiae Mechanicae Perpetuum, and I heard Melancholia, the first performance. So that was quite exciting. But I don't think it's entirely true that continental Europe was behind Britain on that because one of the major things they tried to do in Berlin in the reconstruction was to get the whole culture up and running again. And composers like Stockhausen and Zimmermann and Nono were all caught up in that um, German-speaking revival of, of culture. And so it might have been slower in France, but I certainly, well, again, it was Boulez was doing the Domaine Musical concerts by the early 60s. So I'm not so sure the British were really that far ahead, unless you're really going back to, you know, the late 1940s. Well, this would be going back even earlier than that, actually, in the period ah. between the, the, the late 20s and, and 1936. Uh, and it is actually astonishing the the breadth and variety of uh, what would then have been actually quite obscure composers that were that we're getting a hearing on the on the airwaves. Oh, so, okay, yes, yeah. So, but that, that, that's not a it's not a story that is often reported upon. So, I was very oh, interested okay. anyway to to read more about the early history of the BBC. Uh, I'll look that book up. That that sounds very interesting. I think what's happening today, and I'd very much like to have your perspective on this, is that that sort of post-war model that you mentioned with the the heavily subsidized uh, radio or orchestras in Germany and a little bit later in France uh, and other countries seems to be collapsing all around us in Western Europe in the sense that there's a progressive uh, disengagement of the respective European states from supporting this kind of work. And the emergence of what I believe is a new model uh, in which composers effectively have to build their audiences themselves, find their own opportunities, and simply cannot rely upon that level of institutional support anymore. I think this is there's a very banal ex explanation for that. My generation, I'm 67 now. My generation grew up in the 60s. We in, inhaled liberal left-wing thinking through our genes. The people who are now running a lot of the major institutions around the world grew up under the Reagan-Thatcher years. They're the people who are now in their 50s. Um, and they in, inherited a kind of mentality of selfishness and, you know, personal responsibility and the state as nan being a nanny state and wanting to reduce state spending. And so we're suddenly seeing what happens when the results of those of the eighties of growing the people growing up in the eighties having power is actually. Um, negative. It's um, deleterious to the quality of culture. And I'm afraid, you know, we, we are reaping as we sowed. Well, and, and so you have an interesting perspective on this too, because you've you've been resident in Australia for 30 years now, I believe. You're now mm, an Australia, yep. Australian citizen. Yep. 
And I wonder how the situation looks over there. Oh, the situation here has always been fairly poor for, for contemporary music. I mean, there was a period in the 90s after I got here when um, one major composer, Richard Meal, who had previously been a Boulezian modernist, retreated from writing that kind of music and started to produce music that was more... Um, sort of sounded more like Janacek, curiously. I mean, it was nice music, but but uh, for me, it was kind of um, conformist. But what that did was it opened the floodgates and all the young composers of my age suddenly decided that modernism was bunk and they repudiated it all as, you know, technocratic fantasies of progress is the phrase that was banded around at the time. And consequently, we ended up with the composers who are emerging as the most powerful, and I, I mean, I won't mention any names, but the, the, everybody knows who they are. And they um, got power in most of the major Europe, uh, Australian institutions and started to enact a sort of apartheid against modernism. And it was quite depressing because I just, I mean, I was given a little bit of funding this year, but... With one exception, I haven't received any funding from the national funding body since 1994. And it was just a complete sort of coup by these these conservative forces. And um, I remember when the funding was announced for a particular year in the middle of the 90s, and only Elysian was funded out of all the uh, modernist ensembles in Australia. And it turns out that the chair of the funding bodies made the remark offhand to somebody that Australia only needed one modernist ensemble. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. That's... Therefore, why should they fund any others? Right. Well, I mean, this is one of the inherent problems, I suppose, in, in state-funded models, uh, which is that they, they can very easily become politicized and you can yeah. have large numbers of uh, significant decisions being made by a handful of people. And uh, that's basically what the situation is in France, actually. Yes, yes. Although it, it's tilted more in the direction of modernism than perhaps would be the case in Australia. Well, that's a good thing. Yeah, well, the the number of uh, of things that have been uh, that have been funded and supported uh, quite generously by the French state over the past thirty or forty years is quite remarkable. That's true. Yeah. So it, it's not obvious that that will continue indefinitely, but no. so far. Yeah. Well, I'm musically a real francophile, so you know it pleases me to know that people like Gérard Grisset, you know, and Murai, and others have have been treated well, on and mm -hmm. off. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it, I mean, it was actually the EBU that broadcast Nunez Tifereth, which is one of the most remarkable things I've ever heard. And that would have been, I guess, in Strasbourg, probably. Oh, right. At the Musica Festival, perhaps. Yeah, possibly. It was in, in the mid-80s. I can't clearly remember, I'm afraid. But it was for me, it was one of the great musical experiences hearing, hearing Tifereth. Yeah, no, there, there certainly have been a lot of good things done here over the years, that's for sure. Uh, and it's been a very, a very good place to live. I've been here for almost twenty years, yeah, and I've I've been able to benefit from that to uh, to some extent as well. Good. So, well, tell us a little bit about about your work. Uh, so, one one thing that uh, I find exceptionally intriguing about you actually is that you exemplify a certain uh, ethos of independence. I would say, in the sense that you're not a joiner of of clans or trends. 
And you really have uh, plowed a very distinctive uh, path um, during your compositional career. And in, in many respects, you've, you've remained somewhat aloof from, uh, from some, many of the sort of dominant currents, you might say. You've been associated with new complexity, but first of all, that, that label doesn't seem to be particularly a, a cohesive one. And I, I'm not even sure how well it always describes your work anyway. So no, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I mean, how how would you situate yourself with with respect to that? Uh, well, I probably wouldn't. I mean, I think my problem is I'm not very academic. I mean, you know, I like to think as as deeply as I'm capable of about things, but I find a lot of academic discourse fairly um, tedious, and consequently, I've never really sought to be in in a university environment. I don't think teaching is really particularly useful in the compositional world. In fact, I think it can be quite um, intrusive into people's personal developments. And so when I teach composers, I tend to just let them loose on my record collection <laughs> and, and just kind of guide them through all the... I mean, I've got 7,000 CDs sitting around me as I speak to you. And so I can pretty much guide people towards most things that they need to hear at the moment they need to hear them. But I wouldn't actually tell people anything... Um, stylistic about composition certainly and I, I find teaching quite unpleasant and I don't like to do it um, although again if people actually come to me and insist that they want me to teach them I will do it but I think that's the main reason I'm not really very academic uh, academically inclined and that has meant that I've just found my own way and also I think possibly people find me difficult to deal with for some reason I can't possibly imagine why I said that well, with a smile, by the way. <laughs> I, I, what you said about the academic world resonates with me. It's, it's, it's always struck me as odd that a, a, a significant percentage of young composers go through the university system, particularly in North America, mm. um, because it, it, it isn't clear to me that composition ought to be an academic subject. In fact, I think I don't think it is one, um, and it, it seems an odd place for composers to end up in that respect but it's become almost a default position. And composition in North America has been shoehorned into universities uh, for decades now. Yes. So, And well, that was one of the reasons I, I came to Europe, actually, was because I wanted to be in the uh, sort of a, a conservatory sort of system as opposed to a university. Yeah. Well, I, I was going to say that's one of the things that astonished me when I went to Melbourne University to do my master's and my doctorate, that – and this was relatively recently. I didn't really bother with academia until until then. Um, I was doing being a postgraduate composer. They had to put us into a postgraduate seminar thread, and the composers had been put into the performance thread. So we went along to these postgraduate seminars at which people talked about playing Mozart piano sonatas, and we could not comprehend why we were in this and we actually lobbied to get in, involved with the musicologists because at least that way there would be something to talk about and in the eventually after after a while we managed to end up having composers postgraduate seminars but it was this idea that no one really knows where to put composers where do we fit we don't really fit in at all in terms of academic structure and i've yeah, I I think that's probably true. It's very hard to to situate composers in a um, institutional 
environment. One, one of the things that I think you can say about composition as a field is that it is an exceptionally difficult one, and you, it requires a certain level of fortitude in terms of one's character and a certain bloody-mindedness also just to, to survive, to keep moving forward. Um, and I suppose that the, the institutions, the universities can be very attractive for many individuals in the sense that it provides a kind of bulwark against, uh, uh, against dissolution and uh, having to constantly worry about material concerns. So you can understand it on that level. But, but you've kept going for, for decades uh, with uh, an extraordinary level of independence and a continuous flow of remarkable new works. So there, there's something in your character that's allowed you to do that, whereas many others would not have been able to. I suspect that's also what makes me difficult to deal with for institutions. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the, I, I've always defined a composer as someone for whom there is a music that is intolerably absent from the sound world out there. And then if that's the case, then, and you feel this uh, obligation kind of obsession to supply that music, then nothing's going to stop you. I mean, you could be utterly wrong. The world could be better off without your music, but that's not the call for me to make. I just, I just feel obligated to produce the stuff, and um, it does, it does make you um, bloody-minded, and and probably more arrogant than I'd admit to. But um, it's either that or conformism. Yeah, it's hard to think of an option in between, uh, and it's it's certainly the case that the, the contemporary composition world is awash in compromise. And in and in, in conformism, uh, and there are there are pragmatic reasons, I suppose, why uh, why that's become so widespread. But still, it's there are exceptions. There are wonderful people like Colin Matthews, who you know um, works hard on other people's behalf, probably as much as he works on his own. And so you see him orchestrating Debussy and pushing the work of um, people he approves of. Well, not approves of, sorry. Pe- people he um, feels deserve more visibility than they actually get, particularly women composers. He was, uh, I think, the amanuensis for Britain at the end of his life. And Colin is just an extraordinarily generous man who gives of himself constantly. And so he's found a middle way that clearly works for him. I don't think I could be that generous. Hmm. Well, let's talk about the very early years then, because I, I, I've often wondered what what got you through the beginning stages of your career. And you were, you were writing music that obviously was uh, considered at the time uh, to be on the fringes of what was doable. Uh, it was not in a in a particularly uh, uh, popular or trendy vein. That's that's a, an understatement. Um, and performances, presumably, and correct me if I'm wrong, but they they would have been few and far between. So how did you manage to get through those those early years? Well, it's actually probably a great deal more complex than that. Back in the um, early 80s, the very early 80s, turn of the 70s, the 80s, when I first started to get performed, I was uh, given a kickstart by the Society for the Promotion of New Music in London, which is this incredible organization that promoted lots of performances of wonderful music by British composers. And... When I first started, everybody seemed to have decided that I was an acceptable modernist. But at the time, there was a 
gradual gulf emerging between the English modernists like Maxwell Davies and Bert Whistle and Oliver Nusson and that, and these new, as you say, the, the, the new complexist sort of strange Fernihoean world that at the time people like Nusson felt very politically um, alienated from. And so when I started to get interested in Ferniho, I suddenly found that a lot of the musicians who I'd previously been quite chummy with withdrew their bonhomie to a degree. And so Oliver Nusson and I spent a lot of time in the 70s sort of chatting and playing each other music and just generally getting along well. And then after I heard Transit and started to become interested in that more, uh, uh, let's call it cryptic kind of music, I found that they, they sort of withdrew from my circle to a degree, and that made life much more difficult. Were you, um, were you at the premiere of Transit? No, but I – oh, was I? I, I heard it live in London, I think, yes. I, I can't remember whether these things were actually premieres. I've never really cared very much about that. It, it doesn't matter, but it, it's just that the, from what I understand, the early performances of, of Transit uh, by the Sinfonietta were watershed events. They were. Oh, yes. And that, that recording has still not been reissued. Um, they, they were. They were absolutely gobsmacking, and they really separated people. You know, some, some loved it. I think the trouble with that music was that it was completely misunderstood at the time. Uh, you know, it, people like Fernie Hope, which is, and partly through his own fault, were seen as being dry, arid, intellectual uh, dinosaurs, Again, it was the kind of goatee beard and the and the horn rim glasses look, um, and no one at the time really noticed the links with Basotti and people like Yanni Christou and the way that these musics were um, building on a quite other t uh, approach stance towards composition, and that I think it's really taken almost again, almost 50 years for people to kind of wrap their heads around what was going on in that period and that the kind of influences that were percolating through the mainstream. And so Transit, I think, has been misunderstood almost completely ever since it was written because, I mean, Transit actually uses these repetitions of sections with different instrumentations in each repetition, exactly as Basotti does in Bergkristall, and it's very rarely commented on. Yeah, that is surprising. I mean, it, I, I agree with you. It, it seems like there are many uh, vital aspects of Ferniho's music that have not been properly understood. For one thing, uh, it's always struck me as fairly obvious that he has a, a, a quite a wicked sense of humor. And oh, for a, sure, a, yes. And a very, a very demented one also, actually. Yeah. And that uh, surfaces regularly in his work. It's almost never mentioned. Time and Motion Study 2. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes, that, that's, I mean, that's the bondage piece, you know, that yeah. the performance <laughs> instructions in the score of that piece are ridiculous. And I must admit, there's quite a lot of fairly wicked performance instructions in my pieces. And Brian gave me permission to do that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So, well, hopefully the, the sort of aspects of the work will begin to be properly appreciated. But when I, when I attended uh, one of the early performances of Shadow Time, 
which was what it would have been in 2004 or 2005, uh, there were there were sections of that work that I found absolutely hilarious and and in, 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 in the positive sense, obviously. And uh, it struck me as odd that it, that it wasn't noticed. Yeah, I mean, there there's humor in my music. Um, but as Frank Zappa would say, but you, you know, no one's really picked up on that. Um, I mean, Michael Finnessy's written some very funny pieces. I mean, I remember he did a piece called Punch and Judy that was just hilarious. Well, I wonder to what extent the public discourse around your music and the music of other composers you've been associated with may, may have contributed to that to some extent. Uh, you mentioned, um, or maybe you didn't mention, but the, Brian's uh, writings, for example, uh, can be off-putting to many. The, the prose is quite torturous. Um, there's, there have also been a, a series of exceptionally interesting articles by Richard Tube, uh, yeah. uh, including the four facets of the new complexity, which yes. incidentally was uh, it was via that piece that I first heard about your work. Oh, uh, good. It, yeah, it was actually in a French translation in a book by Nicolas Darbon. Mm-hmm. Uh, called Brian Fernihau et la Nouvelle Complexité, in which uh, large sections of the original article are translated into French at the back. And there's oh, a, good. a chapter about you in there. And that's how I first came across your work. Hmm. And it's it's an extremely interesting article, but it's not exactly written in the sort of uh, familiar uh, sort of fireside chat sort of register. I think you have to draw quite a clear distinction between what we write about ourselves and what others write about us. I mean, it's something I was thinking about with Zanarkis. Uh, I mean, Zanarkis wrote some of the most emotionally compelling music of the period, and yet you'd think reading his books that this stuff was purely mathematical. And it seems to me that quite a lot of what we composers write about ourselves, I mean, I don't know how you feel about this as a composer, but certainly I as a composer, I'm torn between opening myself up and discussing the stuff as openly as I possibly can and protecting myself, sort of avoiding, particularly in, our, in the era of Facebook and social media trolling. I don't want to be trolled by people. I don't actually have a social media presence, so it's not really a problem. But I know certainly lots of other people don't want to in, bring hell down upon themselves. And I think that Sanarchis wrote so extensively about the mathematical aspects of his music as a kind of smokescreen to protect himself from, as a kind of buffer, let's say a buffer. In fact, Richard Toop, I think, talked about, um, you know, using grids and things in our compositional processes as buffers. And I think talking about the mathematics in Zanarchis was for him a way of buffering himself against the kind of attacks he was going to received, which of course he did constantly. And it might be that what Brian writes about his work functions in a similar way, that it kind of keeps people at arm's length. Um, but what Toop wrote, of course, was um, from knowing us personally. And so his his writing is is quite different. It comes at it from, a, from a, an entirely other perspective. But the thing is, Richard didn't really know our perspectives. So he didn't really touch on the fact that I was writing what I thought was a kind of punk modernism because I was so offended by the institutional, anemic, bloodless modernism that was going on in England at the time. The London Sinfonietta would put on concerts of pieces that were all sort of identical Maxwell Davies copies. And I think that the sort of the 
the spirit in which it was written was not necessarily transmitted that well by by Richard's article. And unfortunately, because that's become the canonical article on us four, um, I think there are misconceptions even today floating about out there. It could be. I mean, one of the aspects of that article that, that one can't fail to notice is that he takes a certain amount of time, and besides the interview portion, to lay out, as it were, the entrails of uh, some of the pieces and, and show, in some cases, in quite a lot of detail, how they were actually put together. So there's a, there's a, a certain technical dimension to it. But that's that, Richard's thing, of course. Yeah. You know, I mean, Richard is the man who wrote the analysis of Superscriptio that's longer than the score. Right. <laughs> you know, so Richard took a certain pleasure in that particular um, d- demolition of pieces. Right. Yeah. And, and further to what you were saying about some of these uh, writings being a, a certain form of smokescreen, it's the case also with other canonical books of, uh, of post-war music. I'm thinking of uh, Boulez on Music Today, for example. Mm which is almost entirely unhelpful in terms of providing any actual <laughs> illumination yeah. into what he was doing. Yes. And in fact, the, the examples are, he gives in the book are, are completely opaque, and there's no particular connection with any one of his compositions. And from what I understand, that was also an attempt, in a certain sense, to, to get people to not stick their noses too deeply into his processes. Yes, an obfuscatory stratagem. Yeah. Well, again... We don't. I mean, as we composers don't really want to alienate people completely. We want them to be interested in the ideas behind the pieces, uh, but I don't know that we particularly want them to uh, adopt a sort of celebrity interest. You know, I think the the cult of personality, which we have to put up with these days, is something that m- most of us composers try and retreat from. Yeah. Well. It- my own reaction to that, I suppose, has been, uh, and maybe it's a cop-out, has been simply not to write about my work and not to talk about it very much, unless I'm specifically asked to, and even then I often don't do it. Partly well, you know, because, the, yeah. you know, well, it's 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 a it's an extremely uncomfortable exercise. And there's a, there's a, a prominent musicologist and, and author uh, in France slash Switzerland, uh, Philippe Albera, uh, who has uh, stated with a certain amount of dismay that c- composers of, of the current generation, let's say, seem to be very disinclined to any kind of public theorizing or publishing articles about their work, and it, it seems to have gone out of favor. And he sees this as an unfortunate development, so signaling a kind of uh, disinterest in in formalizing one's thinking and, and so on. I think that's the zeitgeist, though, isn't it? I mean, you know, you can't formalize your thinking when the culture around you is is reconstituting itself every five years. Hmm. You know, you need to be chameleonic in order to uh, retain your position within a culture. Other, otherwise, you end up with someone like me, who is not particularly chameleonic, and I, I find myself utterly marginalized. And one of the reasons why I do write about myself almost strenuously at the moment is because I can't think of any other way of getting attention to the music. Hmm. Because, you know, I don't get played anymore. No one in Europe is playing my works. This is partly, of course, as a consequence of 20 years of financial neglect by arts institutions in this country. I've not had the resources 
to um, actually spruik my stuff to musicians right around the world, and they haven't heard of me, so why would they play my stuff? So there's a kind of downward spiral of neglect to the point where the only way I can get people's attention to my music is to shout about it. And hopefully people who listen to me talking to you today will go and have a listen to some of the music, and that might encourage them to take it a bit more seriously. But the music itself isn't getting noticed, so you have to kind of put your head up and say, here I am, have a look at me. Yeah, I think I think that is true to some extent. Uh, and composers, especially with this progressive uh, sort of withdrawal uh, from uh, from state support and so on, uh, do have the obligation to some extent to, to draw attention to their own work. And which one could see as an unfortunate development, but it, uh, on another level, that's simply the way things are at the moment. Yeah. But uh, so the the idea that that good work will naturally, of its own accord, attract an audience, unfortunately, does not bear uh, any resemblance with reality. Well, again, we come back to the Thatcher Reagan thing that uh, everything has to be commercial. You have to be a mer- mercantile minded. Um, everything has a commercial value. Therefore, you have to promote your stuff as uh, a commodity. And, you know, that's the kind of thinking that I personally will not engage in. And consequently, I don't commodify my music any more than I absolutely have to. Um, and unfortunately, I don't have a publisher who can do that on my behalf and therefore not make me feel quite so dirty about it. Well, fortunately, um there are some exceptionally high quality recordings of your work that are widely available and uh, you mentioned Colin Matthews earlier and yeah. we have to we have to talk for a second about the the NMC CD of your work mm. uh, Ixlands and uh, one thing i would say to anyone listening to this is you you must immediately listen to Ixlands the piece which is mm. uh, and I, I i do not say this often but it is a magnificent work it truly oh, thank is you. and I, I think it should be heard by everybody. Uh, it, it it's also, from what I understand, it marks somewhat of a turning point in your in the sort of evolution of your style. Uh, and you've you've commented that it it came partly out of your relocation to Australia and the, the somewhat new, um, let's say, situation that you found yourself in with respect yeah. to yeah. Say the dominant aesthetics that were at play at that time. I wonder if you could talk a bit about how that piece came about and and what it reflects in terms of the the evolution of your work. Yeah, I, I mean you've picked the right piece there. It exists as much as anything. That piece exists because of Daryl Buckley. Daryl Buckley is the artistic director of the group Elysian. He was visionary far beyond anybody else in Australia at the time. He has uh, commissioned works from any number of composers, which are really significant. I mean, James Dillon, Richard Barrett, particularly, of course, you know, Lisa Lim. Um, And it's thanks to him that many of my works were first heard in Australia. And it's thanks to him that my work was heard at all through the 90s and the early 2000s, because no one else was showing any interest, uh, which might, of course, have been a consequence of religion being interested. And I think there was a certain kind of repudiation on the part of the more uh, musical establishment in Australia towards religion. But Daryl ran that ensemble brilliantly and continues to do so. And Ixlands came about because of that. It also was the piece in which I finally became totally sick of 
the kind of criticisms that were put forward of the way I had previously notated my music. I'd attempted to notate it in a way that would provoke personal engagement and uh, rubato performances and a kind of um, decoding of the notation creatively. But actually all that happened in my earlier works up until Ixlands was that people just got angry because they couldn't make sense of the notation. And I realized by that stage that continuing to notate the way I had been was actually hiding to nothing and I should adopt some kind of normalization. So what I did was I decided to resolve the musical ideas into a more traditional grain. I mean, I didn't change them in any way. I just started notating them with less sophisticated rhythmic uh, distinctions. And Ixlands was the first piece uh, I wrote in which I adopted this newer way of presenting the material. And I, I, I stress the material didn't actually change. It was solely the way I presented the notation that changed. And Ixlands for me was very important in that regard. Also, it was the first piece I think I wrote in 20 years that had a voice in it. So for me, it was uh, a revisiting something that I'd done previously. There's, there's a certain amount of misunderstanding of the piece also. People think it's a work for voice and ensemble, but it's not. It's a work for ensemble with a voice in the ensemble. And I've had people complain to me that it's, the voice is not mixed forward enough, but the point is the voice isn't meant to be mixed forward. The voice is meant to blend in with all the other instruments in the texture. So I'm glad to have had the opportunity to put that thought out there. And I was very fortunate in that one of the great Australian writers, Bernie M. Jansen, gave me permission to use some of her text uh, because uh, that's always an issue with text. You know, copyrights can be a real nuisance. And so Ixlands was written in, I think, about 96 to 97. It was done several times in that period. And uh, Deborah Kaiser, the soprano, was a great personal friend of mine. And so it was a real pleasure to write for her. I knew everybody in the ensemble, so I was able to write for them. And so for me, it was a tremendously rich and happy experience. And I think the piece reflects that. Yeah, I think so too. It's 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 a it's an exceptionally beautiful work, and it, it's interesting actually to hear you say that one of the things that was different about it was a, a comparatively uh, simpler approach to rhythm. But it struck me also listening to it, and I, I have to say also as a sort of proviso that I don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of your work, so there are some uh, important pieces that I I have not heard. So you you can forgive me if if this yeah. is not accurate, but. It seems that there's more of an emphasis on heterophony with, let's say, a certain focusing on harmonic fields, I suppose, yes. um, and and, and yeah. also with with melodic intervals such as the octave, and also the sections where in which you have a, a kind of a, a folk-like gamba-like drone in the background, mm. yes, yes, supporting the voice, bowed vibraphone, yes, yes, exactly. I, I can I just contradict you there? Please do. I didn't simplify my rhythms. I simplified the presentation of my rhythms. The rhythms are exactly the same. I should explain. I work in time space. My pieces are written entirely in seconds. When I first create them, they look a bit like um, one of those early Klaus Huber pieces. And then once I've actually written an entire section, I will go back and, and very carefully demarcate the mensural durations of each of the notes. 
but the actual music, the music written uh, in time space doesn't change in the slightest. What's happened and particularly happened in Ixlands is that I decided that I would make slightly less accurate demarcations of the difference between a septuplet and a sextuplet, say, or I would actually divide something into 12 instead of 11. And it just resulted in a slightly less gritty, confronting rhythmical notation. But the actual music that sits behind it did not change an iota. But it was, uh, it had, I had to make that concession because performers were just, they, they, they were um, uncomfortable with the presentation of the music when it was written in a more complicated notational fashion. But as I say, the actual music, the way I wrote the music, it didn't change in the slightest. Was that something that you pursued after that piece? In other words, did you then return to a, a more, for, for want of a better term, sort of high resolution rendering of these uh, time space proportions? Not really. I think the notation in the next lens uh, presages everything that came after it. Um, as to the harmonic fields, I'd always worked with harmonic fields. I think what I did with Ixlands was contract them into a 12-tone language instead of a 24-quarter-tone octave. And I started having harmonies that repeated in octaves rather than in greater intervals. I mean, I, I used to do what Zanarkis did, which is to have repeating intervallic subdivisions that would repeat themselves at the interval of the tenth rather than the octave. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that results, I've decided that resulted in things that were not actually particularly effective orally. And one of the reasons I actually compressed these harmonic sets back into octaves is because it makes them actually more uh, palpable. Yeah, to, to pursue that line of thought, actually, one thing that immediately came to mind when you were mentioning uh, these harmonic fields in, in quarter tone notation is the opening of Brian Fernieho's string trio, uh, which is written in that fashion in which you do have a 24-pitch microtonal harmonic field, very, very widely spaced. And yeah. you hear this uh, in, a, in an opening viola solo. Yeah. And it, it took me many, many listenings before I could actually understand exactly how that was functioning in the work there were you, you could tell that there's a certain amount of redundancy in the pitches and so on but it, it, mm. it didn't immediately register as being a harmonic field i didn't notice it in that piece i have to be honest i haven't really listened to that work a, a lot of times but it la chute de car does that also the opening of la chute de car is quite i mean it's it's essentially homo uh, heterophony but mm -hmm. it has the effect of producing a very distinctive and 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 audible harmonic field. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. And also the fact that you have uh, clearly defined uh, upper limits, upper and lower limits to those figures allows you to perceive them a little bit more easily. And also I think timbrally, the, the mixed ensemble of La Chute de Car means that you really pick up on them quite clearly. Yeah, I think that's true as well. Yeah. Um, let, let's talk about the the sort of drone uh, aspects of Ixlands and mm. how that fit, how that fits into the work, because you could argue that that's stylistically heterogeneous with respect to many other <laughs> aspects of the work. I don't know that I would necessarily put forward that argument, but mm -hmm. uh, when when those textures emerge, you can't help but think of uh, hurdy gurdies or you know the, yep. these sort of uh, perfect fifth drone type of textures. And how does that uh, fit into your conception of the piece? Um, well, the piece, it, it, they actually separate the piece into three panes. So they are uh, connective tissue. 
Um, and I just essentially compressed the musical line down to a single melody. So I ex excluded all the other processes that have been going on either side of them. And, I, okay, look, I'll be absolutely honest. One of the reasons the drone is there is to make the, the pitches easier for the soprano to sing. I know that's brutally banal, but actually vocal music, I wanted her to still be in tune when the ensemble came back in. And one of the simplest ways to achieve that is to actually have a drone. But then having decided that, it also became a creative feature. And so I was able to actually compose with that. So the answer to your question is it was a practical issue that I then turned into a compositional one. Well, I wouldn't call that a, a banal consideration because in okay. a certain sense, well, composers are always obliged on some level to be pragmatic. Mm -hmm. And especially with, with vocal music, it's it's true. It, it, it can be can very quickly be a problem if there's no way for the soprano or the singer to be to be oriented in the work. And also having heard things like Jamilu Bupasha and you know other soprano solo lines in Nono, I thought it was a particularly beautiful sound. But I'm also very keen on those bowed metal sounds, the bowed vibraphones, bowed crotales. I I find them really beautiful. And I wanted to have that in there, but I didn't want both both of those connective tissues to have the same timbre so the other one has strings yeah well it uh, it works beautifully well and actually what we could do uh, at this point in the podcast i'll i'll play an excerpt of the piece so that listeners can Good. can hear yeah. what the what the work sounds like Thank you. 
With respect to vocal music, it, it strikes me that in the in the forties and fifties, you start to see the emergence of a type of vocal music that is prospective in nature and, in many respects, um, extremely difficult to realize uh, in terms of the composer's intentions. I'm thinking of pieces like, well, certainly almost any of the Webern vocal pieces, yeah. but also much later things like Threni uh, by, by Stravinsky, yeah. which yeah. is an unbelievably hard piece to perform. Yeah. It's uh, also quite hard to listen to. It's also quite hard to listen to. Yeah. Well, it's, I don't think it's on anyone's uh, top 10 list of the, you know, the, the late Stravinsky pieces. Well, I didn't think so until I think it was uh, Herovega did a recent recording um, and I hadn't heard the piece for many years. I've got the old Stravinsky one, and I listened to it done by Herovega. And actually, it has a, it is kind of like the uh, the Webern. There is a sort of pure pure intervallic simplicity to it that I found found considerably less um, unpleasant than I did when I first heard it. It's a difficult piece, but the Herovega it does make a good case for it. It's it's yeah. certainly the the finest performance that I've heard of it. Yeah, I was surprised. I must say, yeah. But I mean, one one thing that does make the the late Stravinsky pieces more palatable, one could say, or uh, that one thing that that uh, provides the listener with something that is really immediately engaging is is his absolute mastery of instrumentation, which which comes through in all of those pieces. I would say there are all kinds yes. of interesting, eccentric, unexpected touches that are incredibly sophisticated in terms of uh, his his handling of instruments, and. Uh, 
Yeah. You don't, you don't get that in Vabrin in the same way. No, you certainly you? don't. No. But uh, again, I don't know. I I feel I, – look, I, I'm not a Stravinskyan. I, I'm, I don't go along with Boulez. I find Stravinsky difficult. And when he chooses ensembles like that, when he uses, you know, an E-flat e alto clarinet or whatever – I feel like it's um, it's kind of like doing instrumental Lego. He's making pieces out of colors, and they, they're these bright yellow instruments and bright blue instruments, and then he makes uh, a structure out of them. But there's no, no, they don't really blend. They function, they function in a very um, architectonic fashion, and mm -hmm. you know that works very well. But it's not how I would do it. And so for me, those Stravinsky pieces sit at arm's length. Um, but coming back to what you were saying about vocal music, I think the, the work that scared the shit out of me, I have to say, just in terms of difficulty of performance, was the Ligeti Requiem. Oh, yes. And I looked at the score of that and thought, how in God's name does anybody sing this? Yeah, no, there, there, are, there are many passages in, in Ligeti where you look at it and it's, it seems almost unthinkable that anyone would be able to perform it. Yeah, uh, and yet, and yet, people do. Uh, I'm not always sure how accurate it actually is. No, but I certainly think that early, the early recording, the one that was used in 2001, is pretty messy. But nonetheless, the the total effect is quite impressive. I mean, the, the problem is the works I like for massed voices are the sort of things that Michael Finnessy wrote and the Chiarino Madrigals mm -hmm. and uh, Brian's um, Missa Brevis. Uh, those works are, and you know, Basotti, some of those Basotti vocal pieces, like the Rara Requiem, those pieces are extraordinarily beautiful. I'd love to be able to write a work like that. But when my, I have, my fourth symphony has four voices with it. And when they did that, each of the singers decided to have an electronic keyboard with an earpiece so they could, you know, locate their pitches, which is fine. That's, that's good. Except that they all used full scale Korg keyboards and it looked like there was they were i think i said in an interview recently they looked like faithless in front <laughs> of the orchestra it's kind of like faith faithless doing a gig and i don't really want to have 12 voices every single one of whom has to have their electronic keyboard i think there are there are difficulties there with with writing for those number of voices mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well in speaking in terms of uh, let's say uh, practical impediments to performance and and uh, how far one can go in that direction how willing are you to write pieces that let's say don't have an immediate prospect for performance or that pose such significant practical problems that they're unlikely to be performed uh, frequently well the god the god's honest truth is everything i write is kind of in that boat in the you know, I write for performers, and but there's no guarantee the performer will want to perform the piece once it's written. There's there's no kind of contract or anything involved. Um, I have got a lot of half finished pieces for ensemble and large ensemble around me that I will at some point put into finished order. Um, and I don't suppose they'll be played in my lifetime, but you know, I still feel an obligation to, to finish them, and I feel obligated. To to the pieces. I mean, one of my projects between now and when I finally cark it is to get all my back catalogue into performable order so that mm. at least if I'm not here to see it, someone can mount a performance of something. Whereas at the moment they can't really because I'd need to be there to 
kind of copy the parts and clarify things. And that's that's not a happy situation for my output to be in. So I need to get that done. Funnily enough, a friend of mine said exactly the same thing to me just a week or so ago. So it's I think it's something that composers over 60 start to think about. Yeah, I mean, there there are certain certainly many instances of composers not properly attending to the the more sort of archival aspects of their work. Uh, Moderna is one instance of that, where oh, the, yeah. the scores the scores are in terrible condition. That's yeah. uh, very difficult to get a correct performance material, and so on. And many of them are handwritten and very very fragile. And you, we've seen that that can, I mean, that's not the case for your work. I mean, your, your, your scores are, are very well presented and many of them are available on your website and so on. But uh, you can see that, that that can be an impediment to performance. Well, and, and also, you know, my fourth symphony is on A0 paper, mm. which means that it can't be me- mechanically reproduced very readily. So I'm going to at some point have to sit down in front of Dorico or Finale or something and actually transcribe the whole thing into electronic form so that someone further down the line can actually perform it if need be. And mm-hmm. that's that's a scary thought. That's a year's work in itself. Yeah, I suppose it comes down to deciding how you want to use your time as a composer because yeah. one, one could say, well, I'm going to take all of my available time and, and simply produce new works. Mm. But uh, in many cases, one is obligated also to spend time ensuring that recordings exist, ensuring that the, the scores are well presented, yep. published, or properly copied, and so on. And I think I think people don't really realize just how incredibly time-consuming all of that can be. Yeah, especially if those were without publishers. I mean, it's I mean, not that people with publishers necessarily do that much better, but uh, at least someone like Brett Dean, for example, has got a publisher who can do at least some of that work for him. Um, And also, he's a very quick composer, I think. But I did actually decide several pieces ago that I was going to stop accepting requests for new pieces. And then every time someone asks me, I kind of change my mind and break my rule, Hmm. write a piece. I mean, you can't say no to people. I mean, for God's sake, if someone wants a piece from me, I'm not going to turn around and say, well, no, actually, I have better things to do with my time. Yeah, it's it's especially difficult if it's a friend. Yes, that's true also, yeah. Um, but I think anybody who's interested in my music deserves to be encouraged. And so if someone comes to me and says, I want a piece, I'm not going to say no. Let's center this back on on your your compositions again, because another piece that really struck me uh, when I was listening to it again was funk. And one of the reasons that the piece struck me, I suppose, is one thing that I tend to look for as a listener is what you might describe as a compelling sound image. In other words, uh, Mm. something that that simply sounds like nothing else, gestures that are immediately compelling, let's say from the very beginning of a work. And when I, yeah. when I say a sound image, I'm referring to things like that, that famous uh, brass chord in Gruppen that swings around the hall or the, 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 yes. the, the yeah. very opening chord of Plis de l'Ompli. Like These are things that you can't forget because they're so unique and striking. Yeah. And that it, it's, it would seem to be an obvious thing to strive for, but it, it seems actually like it's very difficult to achieve a striking, original, powerful sound image well, I I don't think in those terms. I mean, I hear 
constantly new pieces that have striking singular sound images, um, but nothing else. Mm. And I'd, I've never thought in those terms. I always think in terms of polyphonic lines and architectonics and the like. I'm a top-down composer. I, I work out the structures of my pieces. I've, I describe my pieces to people as force fields into which I sprinkle the notes to make them audible. Hmm. And so those kind of moment-to-moment sonorous events are kind of a byproduct of the process of doing that and uh, so they're they're very happy happy occurrences but they're not actually something i go out of my way to to achieve they're they're a byproduct as i say um i appreciate it when people like those sound, sound things but they are part of uh, an unfolding tapestry of sound and so they're moment, momentary beauties in something else that's unfolding. And that's how I like them to be. So, you know, in Gruppen, that, that chord does kind of emerge from context really beautifully. But I do hear other pieces. And, and um, I mean, there are quite a lot of examples in the spectralists, actually, where you will have absolutely beautiful moments that are separated by fairly dull sections that, that are not yeah, as engaging. But, so for you, the, those sort of instances must emerge organically from the precepts of the piece and not and not be something that one would strive for, per se. Well, I, I quoted somewhere, I read Tristan Murai somewhere saying that what, what people are going to end up doing if we're not careful is just moving sound around. Hmm. And I mean, that's true in certain worlds already. I mean, if you think of the kind of laptop composers... Um, there, there's quite a lot of laptop stuff out there that is pretty dull because, you know, what you hear is. I think it was Warren Burt who said that you know that what you hear when you listen to electronic music is the history of software. Hmm. Um, so I'm a bit uh, cautious about these these moments, these sort of epiphanic moments of extraordinary beauty, because as as I say, they have to be emergent from context rather than kind of shoehorned into context. Right. Yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. Uh, nevertheless, I mean, the, the, I mentioned funk at the outset of this, and it, it strikes me that, I mean, nothing does sound like that piece. It is, uh, <laughs> and it, it's, it's hard to imagine that that, well, I, I also understand that it was originally intended for contralto uh uh, yeah, yeah. E, e flat contrabass clarinet, and yeah. it's uh, it's been done in a, a bass clarinet version. Yeah, but nevertheless, it, it has a very unique character as a piece, and also in terms of its sound. Well, the secret is that it actually works better on the bass clarinet. I think when I originally wrote it, I the difficulty is you don't know how far you can push virtuosity with instruments like the contralto, where no one actually plays one for enough of the time to become absolutely top-notch at performing it. It's it's not a criticism of performers, but you know, if you're a clarinetist and you have a contralto, you're not going to play it more than once a week mm-hmm. because there's just no parts in orchestral music for it. You might play it in a wind band, but other than solo repertoire, of which there's scarcely any, there isn't really any reason for getting it out of its case. And so when I wrote funk i was very cautious about the top end i didn't write a lot of ultra altissimo notes because i wasn't sure how controlled they were going to be for a performer who didn't play the instrument that frequently um and so i actually kept the tessitura fairly low i think it goes up to about an a 
And on the contralto, that's actually not a very high pitch at all. So when the piece was played on the contralto, it was a bit disappointing because that very high shrieking sound towards the end on the contralto doesn't really shriek. And so it actually works better on the bass. And I, you know, I encourage people to play it on the bass these days rather than on the contralto. On the rare occasions, there's even a choice. Yeah. Well, there's there's a few components to that because you you said that performers who have these sort of esoteric instruments will be unlikely to play them on a regular basis. So there's that dimension to it. It's a problem whenever you write for basset horn also or yep. other oboe d'amour or these other sorts of instruments. Well, I'm about to write a piece for clarinet d'amour. Oh, for right for Richard Richard yep. Haynes. Yeah, Indeed. that's right. That's mm-hmm. right. Um, but the the other dimension to that though is the fact that instrument manufacturers will tend not to perfect instruments that have very few marketing possibilities so so you do have these sort of obscure corners of the woodwind world that simply haven't been developed to the same extent Um, well one of my favorite instruments is the bass oboe i think you've been engaged with the bass oboe haven't you well i'm a hecklephonist i actually own a hecklephone oh do you Yes, I do. Oh, that's, that's very funny. Okay, good. I have one of the very early ones. Yeah. Uh, and it was built around 1906. Yeah. And um, I love that instrument. I love the well, the bass oboe. I've I've played as well. I'm, I don't know if you knew, but I'm a I'm an oboist. I kind of guessed that on the basis of your CD, actually. Yeah. 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 Um, and I'm fascinated with all of these instruments, but the, the yeah. problem with the hecklephone, of course, is there's very few of them and practically no two of them are the same because they were oh. constantly tinkering with the keywork. Yeah. And so the a performer that wants to engage with these instruments has quite a lot of work to do. Yeah. So there are practical impediments once again. Yes, indeed. Yeah. But coming back to funk, just for a moment um because strange coincidence uh, i was sent a video of a performance of funk from the 1990s just a couple of days ago which i haven't really looked at but i just watched a few seconds of it and was reminded just how much fun that piece was in performance again the other problem with funk is that it got performed once in the late 80s and then there was quite a long hiatus before carl took it on and so I'd actually kind of written the piece off as a failure. So when Carl and Peter came along and performed it, I wasn't sure what I would expect. And so when I heard it done by them, I was gobsmacked at how successful it really was. Thank you. 
Let's talk about some of the formal strategies that you use in your work, and I've I've also been extremely interested in in that uh, dimension because this is something that, as far as I can determine anyway, has been present from a, a very early point in your development. With even with pieces like Tilt, in which you have rather than a, a linear development or a linear series of developments, you have a, a rapid uh, cross cutting between multiple different material types. And as somebody who is self-taught, essentially, from what I understand, you never formally studied composition, you would have had to develop all of these formal approaches, either intuitively or at any rate uh, of your own volition. And I'm wondering how they emerged, because they're not standard ways of planning a piece. Well, I did have some composition lessons, and I think the, the... Outcome of having composition lessons was to not have composition lessons, and it's one of the reasons why I won't teach because they were such horrible experiences. Um, I, look, the thing is that because as a composer you are trying to make something audible that exists only in your head, you try to find strategies that reveal that music as clearly as you can. And I, the music in my head wasn't really amenable to being realized using the strategies that were currently existent. So I had to develop ways of doing it. Um, and I, I went through a quite a lot of difficult times in the 70s and the early 80s because under the influence of Zanarkis, I tried to use numbers that I found in nature. Um, but they didn't work. What and do you mean numbers that you found in nature? Fibonacci series, you know, exponential series, uh-huh. um, natural numbers, uh, things that reflected biology. And the trouble is they don't really work terribly well um, because they don't really have any kind of imminent meaning. They are just numbers. So what I was looking for was something that would be of a cultural origin, but that nonetheless provided me with innovative structural ways of thinking. And I found that in Gematria. And so the, the, the formal strategies I use come from gematria. And what I do is I permit the gematric uh, string, the string of values I get, to actually suggest structures to me. And if I set something up and it isn't very promising, I'll reject it and find something else. But it, one of the great things about gematria is it produces symmetries and, um, and interactions between sectional dimensions that you would never think of if you were trying to do this in a sort of systematic way. And I like, I like the, the um, quasi-random quality of it, hmm. that you get symmetries, but they're not symmetries that are kind of logical. They're symmetries that emerge out of a completely other dimension, which in the case of this is written language. Right. And these are the sorts of things that you, you would be unlikely to spontaneously uh, generate out of your own imagination. I mean, you would need to have some kind of external impetus or... Uh, well, you'd have to be a genius, and I'm afraid I'm not. <laughs> well, something external upon which to model the piece, let's say, which yeah. 
Uh, yeah. Well, I, I like, I've always liked the idea of importations, of, of um, being able to take concepts, uh, you call them memes, if you like, and bring them into music, things that are actually extra musical but have, have formal promise. And so, I mean, that's why the piano sonata ended up being a kind of cosmic shape from a big bang through to a big crunch. And my third symphony is also a big bang structure. And I've written several pieces that have that kind of um, explosion and entropy kind of structure. Uh, but it's it's too banal. You can, you can only do that once or twice or two or three times. I mean, unlike visual artists who do seem to be permitted to paint the same painting over and over again, obsessively changing details and working with really subtle nuance within a single idea, composers don't seem to be permitted that um, liberty. Or at least it's not so much we're not permitted the liberty, it's just that um, we can't produce that much work. So we I've, I think we all feel the need to go to the next idea and not revisit the same one over and over again. Yeah, um, it, cer yeah. it certainly happens in pop music in which you have endless variations on the same basic archetypal uh, structural ideas and, yes. and uh, chord progressions and so on. If you can even call them variations. I mean, Indeed. something I predicted in just the other day is that we are going to see a lot more plagiarism trials. Mm-hmm. As, mm -hmm. as the, all the possible permutations for three or four chords get used and the younger generation who have a bad habit of not listening to what already exists are just going to keep repeating things. And so there's going to be unintentional plagiarism everywhere. That, that does seem likely. There have been a number of those sort of high-profile trials lately. Already. And, 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 yeah. the, and the people who are on the, res uh, uh, the victims of it seem to be baffled as to why they're in court. Right. Yeah, well, plagiarism, if you want to use that word, or let's say a certain uh, use of common property, uh, you know, slightly varied or slightly modified, is is, is just a, a basic feature of popular culture in many respects, and it has been for a long time. But it's not a it's not a part of the legal system, and until such time as the two things are brought into sync, we're going to see plagiarism trials that are a complete waste of everybody's time. Anyway, that's a digression. So one thing that I, I came across recently was uh, you mentioned that there's a, a kind of a dichotomy between two formal archetypes in your work. Uh, and you can tell me if I've got this wrong. But on the one hand, the, the labyrinth, the, the labyrinthine. Uh, and on the other hand, these sort of arch structures or multi-arch structures, particularly in the solo wind pieces. Yeah. I wonder if you could uh, elaborate on that a little bit and uh, sort of describe what you mean by these by these terms. Okay. Uh, they're, they're two different ways of organizing material, quite often the same material. And in fact, there's a piece of mine called The Sadness of Detail, where both versions exist. And uh, it comes down to how you treat your structures. One way is to use your structure as an unfolding series of large arches. And this, this comes down again to my old adage that form and rhythm are the same thing on different scales. That uh, the way you subdivide time on the large scale and the way you subdivide the way one can subdivide time on the small scale can be the same. I mean, that gives you a self-similarity between all the layers of your structure. This means that you can subdivide arches in a way in the, in the same way that you might subdivide a bar or even a beat. 
But there are two ways you can present that. You can either present it as one arch subdivided followed by another arch subdivided, or you can jumble up all of the subdivisions and run them in an, in an order whereby they all get played, but not necessarily connectedly. So you rely on a kind of oral um, entanglement to make sense of the way the thing unfolds. Now, that's what I would call the labyrinthine method. And that's what my labyrinths are. They're structures where each iota of the, of the larger formal structure are presented non-linearly. And then the other kind of structure is one where they're actually left where they belong in the, in the larger structural arches. It's a bit hard to describe in words. Well, so how does that change your perception of a work such as The Sadness of Detail when you have these two versions of it? How would you describe the listening experience of the intercut version as opposed to the more linear version of that piece? The intercut version is less localized. It's, if you like, the difference between local affiliations and global affiliations. When you have each arch played as is, without the separate sections taken out and reassembled, you end up with a sense of the piece consisting of a sequence of larger structures. And so the music uh, has, has allegiances to what's around it. But if you take them out like mosaics and place them non-locally, you end up with... Uh, much greater contrast between events on a local level. The, the, the music might be completely unchanged, but the way it's juxtaposed results in a quite different mode of discourse. Mm -hmm. I, I've only heard the, uh, the recording that's on score, score Follower of that piece, so I, I can't compare the two versions, but I'd be very curious to. I have got a recording of the other one. I'll send it to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd love to hear that. Yeah. So what... What are the, the projects that currently lay dormant, or what are the things that you would like to do at this point? So I understand that at this point, you have a bit more time on your hands, and then you know, you're less uh, bound up with, um, let's say, uh, things that you have to do in order to make a living than would have been yes, the case. Yes, that, that's true. Yeah. Um, I'm, a, I'm a retiree. So does that uh, provide you with more opportunities to realize uh, projects and uh, do things that have been sort of on your uh, to-do list for a long time? Yes. I mean, it has to be said that I am I'm also very slack and that my slackness kind of expands to occupy all available time. Um, but I, yes, I do, I do actually get more done these days. Um, I have, the, the, the problem has always been that when I've had to, earn a living like most composers you know i've had to do pieces and put them on the shelf when another work came along someone would ask me for a piece to be performed in six months time and the work piece i was working on would then have to be put on the shelf and probably not returned to and so i've got a shelf of a whole host of pieces that are you know a quarter a third a half written and one of my projects is to go back to them. But the thing is, I don't think I can recapture the original version of the piece. So a project of mine is to actually cannibalize these works and make completely new meta works out of them and, and just sort of reconsider the material in the abstract and deal with it differently. Mm -hmm. Which you've done with an early string quartet, uh, turning it into a, 
65 minute long piece i have yes i i haven't shown you the score yet have i no i haven't seen that one no no, I'll, I'll I'll flick you that one. That's it's still being engraved. My my colleague Andrew Bernard is engraving it in Lillipond at the moment. Um, that was a very interesting challenge, though, because I'm trying to rewrite a piece that I originally wrote in 1985 without um, compromising the original material, but um, improving on the technique by thirty odd years, and that's been very odd. Well, let's let's go back to that then. Uh, you, sort of the the earlier uh, stages of your of your work. Uh, mm. One thing that yeah. intrigues me, especially with respect to people who are largely self taught, is mm. when you're beginning. How how do you go about it exactly? I mean, because if if you were to follow a let's say a, a more traditional uh, scholastic slash academic uh, approach to composition, you would typically begin by learning counterpoint, harmony, and so on, and then working your way through yeah. to more recent things. In in the case of autodidacts, if I can use that term, sometimes the yeah. the apprentice stage, let's say, runs parallel uh, with the creative development. The, the two things happen simultaneously. Uh, was that the case with you? I think that yeah, I think it was. Um, I was I was actually going to disagree with you, but actually now I don't. <laughs> I think that is probably true. When I look at my early pieces, they look embarrassingly crude, but that was actually partly also because I was writing them without the hindsight. I mean, when I think back to those pieces today, they feel crude, but at the time they didn't. And also, one of my intentions was, as I mentioned, to produce a sort of punk modernism, something that was rough around the edges. I used to call it the wire wool effect, hmm. to produce um, counterpoint that was jagged and and unblended and messy. And I did that because I was so outraged by the sort of blandness of what was being written by composers around me. I'm not the good composers like the Nussens of this world, but an awful lot of others who were really not that good. So it didn't feel at the time as if these things were incompetent. But I was pushing my luck, I think, in trying to write what I was writing. I was actually quite deliberately not being terribly observant of limitations of of range and dynamic and technique, uh, because I just didn't feel like letting myself be inhibited by that because that seemed to me it seemed to me those inhib- inhibitions were actually part of the problem with all this bland music mm-hmm. um, but you know there are limits to these things but I think auto autodidact is a difficult concept because you know I did have musical training I did learn counterpoint and all these things I think the point about a self-taught composer as much for myself and and probably people like James Dillon, is not that we didn't have composition lessons. It's just that they didn't supply us with what we needed. And we are autodidacts in that the things that you hear in our pieces are the things we have found for ourselves, not the things that our various um, composition teachers. I mean, for heaven's sake, when I was at City University, I was given as a composition teacher the the lovely but completely flappy um, Alfred Nyman, whose music and mine are at the absolute opposite ends of the spectrum. He's part of that kind of rather um, blousy, Yehudi Menuhin um, school of, of musical imp- uh, musical spirituality. You know, I mean, I, there's, a, there's a term we use these days. Uh, I'm just trying to think what it is. Um, I, I think of it as being kind of uh, arrogantly holy. 
Jonathan Harvey was a bit prone to this. I, I was very fond of Jonathan, but he could do it a bit. Um, humble brag. Oh, right. <laughs> humble braggers. That's the term. Yes. Sorry, it took me a moment to bring that one to mind. But yes, humble bragging. And, and I really, really hated that. And so Alfred provided me with absolutely nothing that was useful to me as a composer. I mean, you know, if I wanted to be a eurythmic dancer, he would have been really useful, but I didn't. I wanted to be a particular kind of composer, and he was just not the man for that. And so uh, I've, you know, I had the odd lesson with other people. I, look, honestly, the most useful thing for me musically, probably at the time, was the long conversations I would have with Michael Finnessy mm-hmm. and, and a few other people that I was close to and fond of. Um, and Zanarkis, I knew Zanarkis slightly in the 70s. He was the professor at City University where I was. And so I got to spend every Friday afternoon uh, chatting with him. And that was always a treat because he was, he was an interesting man. So, so the autodidact term, you know, it's, I'm not an autodidact in the way that some people are. You know, you do come across people who work in complete isolation and very often have no kind of sense of where their music sits in in the great greater world. But no, it was never like that for me. Mm-hmm. And, and you did have a certain uh, community of spirit with other composers of your generation. We got together every time there was a concert. I mean, you know, one of the great things about going to new music concerts in London in the 70s was you saw all your friends. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's an amusing story about that. I went to um, a pub near the Albert Hall with a bunch of other people um, just before a concert where a new work by a composer who should be nameless was being performed. And we were all there, and we were all very excited. And Ollie Nussen turned up with a score of this thing, so we pounced on it and had a look. And it looked like Schumann. And we went on a pub crawl instead of going to the concert. <laughs> So there, there was very much a sense of community and and kind of political orientation at the time, you know. Yeah. And this was just the beginnings of the emergence of kind of postmodern um, pastiche complacency, and we weren't having any of it. Yeah, that that feeling of community, I think, is absolutely critical. It's it's really very important, and in a certain sense, you you have to be lucky. Uh, you have to be in an environment in which that's possible and it often isn't. Um, And uh, to be able to find out that these other people exist and and make some kind of contact with them and to sustain that also across time is, is not a given. So no, well, it's curious. I, you know, when I read about the British composers before 1950 and how, I mean, it's a, it's a myth, I suppose, but there is this this idea that Peter Warlock turned an entire generation of British composers into alcoholics. <laughs> and in a sense, that was possible because they were a community and they all knew one another. But also, it seems to have in, uh, continued right through their lives that they, they were a community. Whereas I think today, people are a community until they're about 30. And then they spread out through the world and you lose that, that sense of um, having a peer group. Well, one thing I remember—I remember from my student days—I had a, a lesson once with the composer Yann Maresch, who said, "Enjoy this time because as soon as you leave the conservatoire, you're going to find that it's going to be difficult to find people to listen to your works, to discuss them with you, and to have any sense of resonance uh, once you get sort of embroiled in a professional career and all of that sort of thing." That 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 well, tends the trouble to trouble is. Th- 
Yeah. They t- they com- they're competitors at that point. They're not competitors when you're a community, but the moment you go out into the commercial world, you're suddenly competing with them for, for the for the rare gigs. That does change the rapport. Changes the dynamics completely. Yeah. yeah. I hate the fact that I'm resentful of people for getting success, but I can't help it. Okay, so you, you weren't able to get much from the composition teachers you were working with, if anything at all. And uh, so what you did have was uh, sort of rich exchanges with with other composers and with other like-minded people. Um, how important was it to you to acquire something like a, a classical technique? And the, part of the reason I asked this question is you've mentioned the term sort of punk modernism a few times. And what, what that would seem to imply to me would be the sort of do-it-yourself ethos and this this idea of you just grab what you have at hand and you make something spontaneously without bothering so much about how it's meant to be done properly. I don't know about spontaneously, but in general, yes, I think you're right. I mean, it, it's I meant punk modernism primarily in the sense of it being fuck you modernism. Mm. But you're quite right. There was, I mean, I think I mentioned earlier that I, I did not worry too much about things like tessitural difficulty, about um, extremes of dynamic, whether they were actually uh, practicable. Practicability was a secondary consideration. More importantly, was to somehow get your vision out there. And I think, I think actually, that's a kind of um, complicity that one slowly eases into as one gets older. You start to to sort of be complicit in in your own toning down of of the excitement of your works because you start to realize that writing high Ds for clarinet is actually hard for the player, (laughs) which is not a consideration when you're 30. Yeah, it reminds me of, you know, there's a piece by uh, Roger Redgate for solo oboe that was done by his brother, Christopher, uh, which is... You're talking about Ausgang's punk? Yes, exactly, yeah. Uh, in which you have a kind of a deliberate pushing of the boundaries in terms of what's physically possible in that piece. And it goes, in in that sense, it certainly goes farther than any other piece I can think of. Yeah, but he had Chris Redgate at the other end of a phone. In fact, probably closer than that. In the same way that in my flute pieces, which I wrote for Laura Chislett at the time that she was my wife, she was in the next room. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I could say to her, look, what I've written is this. Can this be done? But you can't do that with a contralto clarinet very easily. And you cert- you know, you can't do it with an entire ensemble unless, of course, you have one of those composer in residence things. And again, that I would have killed for something like that at, when I was 30. In fact, I'd kill for it today, just the chance to work with actual players and test things out as we go along and adjust the piece in rehearsal. That's a luxury that, you know, we we marginal composers don't really have, and I I regret it. Well, speaking of that, and of your of your situation as an Australian now, and uh, living living in Australia, uh, yeah. I mean, I've I've encountered a lot of Australian composers performers uh, over the years in Europe, and many of them are here with a certain degree of regret. In other words, they would be very happy to remain there, but. They have felt obligated professionally or or for practical reasons to be based in Europe. Now you've done the opposite, so you've ended up yeah. in, in Australia. And how has that 
How has that manifested? Yeah. You know, how, how is how has that been as an experience? <laughs> to, to, to do- I was sitting here thinking, how am I going to respond to this? It was a really <laughs> stupid idea, <laughs> but I I didn't have anywhere else to go. I was married to an Australian. She was the you know the best one of the best flute players I've ever heard. So we came here and came to Australia and. For the first little time, I think I was a bit of an exotic. I was this European who'd come to Australia rather than vice versa, along with a few other people who came at much the same time. And very quickly, the allure wore off and people started to be really um, indifferent to me and to what I did um, because I was no longer an exotic. I was actually part of the local colour. But the other problem that I've encountered when I came to Australia I discovered the moment I arrived that there'd already been um, a kind of push against the kind of music I write, even before I arrived. And there were there was an anonymous um, cartoon series called the Adelaide Pastoral Company, which were quite personal. They were picking on modernists and, and sort of trying to ridicule them. And this all started just before I arrived in Australia. So I, I took it pretty personally. And so the reason why Australian composers don't live in Australia is because it's living in Australia is very difficult artistically. And if it wasn't for the fact that I really like Australia, I wouldn't live here. Well, living, living in a place that has a, a nice climate and where you can have a, an agreeable life is also incredibly important. And there are, <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. It's, 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 no, it's no fun living in a place that you, that you dislike or that uh, is incredibly difficult to live in. That was my experience because I lived in Paris for 10 years. And Paris, for all of its qualities, is an unbelievably yeah. difficult place to live. And, yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I know London, which is probably similar. Right, yeah. So at, at a certain point, you feel like you're hanging on by your fingertips and it becomes very yeah. uncomfortable. And that can also interfere with your ability to continue to produce work. Well, uh, I mean, the the other problem, though, for me culturally was that I was never comfortable in England. I never felt very English. And I was surrounded by all these people who expected you. There was an expectation that you'd be uh, you know, patriotic, sort of post-pastoralist English composer. Um. And I never was that thing, and I never felt very much affinity with my fellow Brits. And so for me, when I first moved out of England and went to live in Italy, I lived on the breadline, but nonetheless it was liberating because I was no longer surrounded by English people. Hmm. And that made me realize that I really shouldn't have lived there even as long as I did, that it was and that's why I was writing music I wasn't happy with. It's why I couldn't kind of free myself from the entanglements of Britishness. And the moment I got out, I felt like a complete human being for the first time in my life. And I came to Australia in 1989. I went back twice in 92 and 95, and I haven't been back to Britain since, and I have no interest in going back there, no. And what about Europe? Oh, well, that's a different question. Uh, Europe in the 80s was a very appealing place, but I've watched it slowly change from a distance. And I'm not sure that I would really want to be in Europe anymore. I mean, if I were to live in Europe, I'd want to live in Italy, probably. And I just don't think Italy is a particularly welcoming place at the moment, and probably won't be for a generation. Yeah, I think in in many respects, that's true. I mean, there are pockets where you can still have... uh... You know, acceptable conditions, let's say, to live and to work, but it is becoming increasingly difficult. Yeah, well, politically, you know, as as I said earlier, we're seeing 
the outcome of the Thatcher Reagan years and all these politicians in Europe, all these populists, they're all of that generation. They're all the people who grew up under the I'm all right, Jack mentality, the kind of, you know, poor people have only themselves to blame view of the world. And that, you know, it's not the state's responsibility to provide funding for things. So, you know, that's their mental template in the same way that we baby boomers had the mental template that, uh, you know, liberalism was the way that the world should be wired. And so, you know, I just think Europe at the moment, in fact, most of the world, including Australia, I have to say, is fairly inimical just at the moment. Well, one thing that's emerging out of the this current situation we find ourselves in is there is an increased reliance upon uh, electronic media, uh, the internet, and these sorts of yeah. virtual communities. And in a yeah. certain sense, uh, one could argue that it's it matters less now where one lives than it would have 20 or 30 years ago. Unless you're Chinese. Yes, that's true. Or North Korean. <laughs> well, I think that that particular kind of censorship is going to get exported. I mean, we're already seeing Hungary going down that road with with the kinds of laws that are being enacted. You know, we've got um, situations throughout Europe where there are parties in power that if they had enough power would start to introduce censorship. They already do in lots of ways. You know, there things like gay marriage is being wound back. There's um, a really powerfully repressive force running through the world at the moment. And again, I, I blame it on the 80s. Yeah, these are massive historical forces in a certain sense that, that you're describing. And uh, as an individual, I think the best thing one can do to, to sort of buffet oneself against uh, these sorts of encroaching um, impediments on personal liberty and many of the things that we take for granted is to simply to live a good life and to try to make um, honest and authentic decisions about what you will and won't do. And and artists can play a role in that, I'm absolutely convinced. Well, this is why I continue to try and write the pieces I write, yes. Well, also, I mean, when you have a a sense of what composers went through, uh, composers like Bartok, Weber, and Varese, in the 1920s and 30s and 40s, and the, the atrocious uh, lives that many of them led, the extreme difficulty they had of getting yeah. anything performed, uh, yeah. the, the constant sense of public derision or, or irrelevance and so on. Bartok's last couple of years are heartbreaking. Yeah, so if, if you have that in the back of your mind as being something that was actually normative in the first half of the 20th century for many yep. uh, modernist composers, in a certain sense... We have a sense of things declining and becoming gradually more difficult in 2020. But at the same time, many of us are far from having had that level of tragedy in our personal lives. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there was, I I mean, it was a sort of golden age for a while there. And now we're just waiting to see what comes next.